What's at the root of most security breaches? Is there a common theme? This week on the TICE podcast, Greg Vandergast, Head of Information at University of Salford, discusses the basic common issues that go unnoticed by security departments, which, more often than not, are the cause of major breaches. Greg explains how organisations can definitely improve their security without spending huge sums of money, as well as why he refuses to use metrics with the board and why he feels CISOs need to embrace more altruism in their role as security leaders. I'm Anna Delaney, editor at TICE, and here's the interview. So Greg, you've studied and analysed many breaches over the years. From your perspective, what's been responsible for these breaches? Is there a common theme between them? As examples, I, I keep giving you know the, the big ones that come to mind. So we've got TravelX, we've got Marriott, we've got VA, we've got Equifax, we've got Capital One. It's always really basic stuff. It's completely preventable. It, was, it wouldn't have been expensive. Um, and all these organizations were spending, I'm guessing, tens of millions each, if not more, on information security. But they missed really basic little things. Um, and yeah, that's, that's what caused it. It's just a lack of holistic application of the basics. While everyone is so focused on the latest, greatest tech and buzzword, we're not doing the stuff that we, we know we're supposed to be doing for the last 30 years. It's just not as exciting. So, so give me some examples of those common unnoticed basics. But like simple asset management uh, is you know, kind of where you start at the technical level. Most people have assets that they are not aware of. And most people, everything's kind of a tick box or yeah, we do that, but you put in an asset management solution, but if it's not reaching everything on the network, or if it's using a mechanism by which it's not necessarily going to catch, you know, it's not going to catch a machine that doesn't answer it if it's just sending it a ping. Or one of those five companies I just named uh, during the investigation, they found that they had something connected to a switch that they weren't aware of. And it was an entire company that they had bought six years earlier with hundreds of endpoints. And just sometimes it's really as simple as, and I advocate this all the time, you have to know the business. You have to engage people in the business. Every single person that contacts me from a new part of our business, no matter how small, I go and have a cup of coffee with them. Where are you based? What do you do? What systems do you use? What kind of data is that? How, how does it all connect so that I become aware of what's actually out there instead of just looking at what my tools are telling me on the screen. You talk about a lack of awareness. So how can companies know themselves better? You say companies, but I would say how can your security, how can your, your CISO, who should ultimately be in charge of this from a security standpoint, there needs to be far more engagement. Most, most CISOs now are still very technical. It's changing. It's changing to be a bit more of a human kind of management role or leadership role, I should say, not management. Um, but the, there is still a huge amount of indoctrination of how we do things. And that tends to be built on a very technical foundation so that, that natural curiosity is, is often missing. Um, and we tend to make things worse for ourselves by layering on all these frameworks and best practices and compliance. And uh, a lot of people are building security according to all these standards that they've downloaded off the internet as opposed to for the business they have in front of their face. And so how, how would you as head of information security, how, what's your checklist entering a new company? How do you get to know that company better? I mean, I just, every single person that comes to me, uh, I 
I almost systematically go through the org chart. Like I want to know what every single person does, what every single unit does, what every single, uh, you know, university research group or faculty or student or class or, or supplier, whatever it is, what do they do? What systems do you own? Uh, and I want to build up the personal relationship as well. That's, that's very important because most people, security historically has such a bad reputation that people don't want to tell you stuff. And if you, they tend to, to be hostile to you right off the bat because that's what they're used to. They're used to just being blocked by security. If you then, no one's ever said no to having a cup of coffee. No one in my, you know, the last five years I've been using this approach, no one has ever said no when I asked them, can we sit down and have a coffee so I can see what I can do for you? Um, once you sit down with them and they enjoy talking about what it is they do, and then they see you thinking about how you can help them not just do it securely, but even help them with some other problem they may be having with IT that's actually not your job, but go, go above and beyond. Their, their perception of you changes completely. And next thing you know, you, you start, these people are not, they're not just asking you, is this okay? They're flat out telling you, by the way, we've been doing this, is that okay? Or, hey, my colleague so-and-so, they're, they're doing this. As I'm like, I just want to make you aware. They become your eyes and ears all over the place. I mean, I've got a team of three people now to manage 30,000 users. But we have, you know, we've built this culture of, of champions throughout, which in, in academia is, is not easy because there's, there's a lot of egos and people want to be able to do whatever they want to do. Um, but you build, you build that, that visibility uh, to know what the issues are. So that's, that's job one. Then you need to go and, and build the relationships with your management to actually give you the capability to proactively uh, solve those issues. Has that always been a smooth ride for you? It's never a smooth ride. Mm -hmm. It's uh, no, um, I was fired from my last job uh, after three months because the client requested I be promoted and the CISO fired me instead. Uh, was identifying too many issues. And I, in the last 10 years, maybe even eight years, um, that was probably the third time that happened uh, where you, you find too many issues. And it's, I think that's quite telling of the security industry today and how kind of ivory towered it is uh, and in many ways, we, we use the fact that people don't understand us to our advantage because uh, there's, there's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of bad CISOs. Those are great ones, but there's a lot of bad CISOs out there who are, I, I think, really just fleecing their companies, getting lots of budget, lots of people, uh, lots of money, lots of spending, but they're really delivering very, very little value. So tell me, why, why isn't money the answer? Because you're not fixing the fundamental problems. Um, and I'll, I'll go back to, to the analogy I give during talks. You imagine a, a car factory and they're building the cars, you know, uh, sheet metal comes in, gets stamped into shape, they paint it, they bolt the, the parts on, then you get a finished car and then they push it into the parking lot to be sold, except they push it in there from the third floor. So it falls to the ground, crashes, and people in the parking lot are, oh God, uh, quick, move it out of the way because there's more coming and every two minutes a car comes crashing down. And God, we need to hire a thousand more people. We need to assess which parts are broken. How do we repair those? Buy some tooling to do that. Let's build some workshops. Let's get some consultants in. We need to structure this. Let's, let's create some kind of framework. And, and then we need auditors to make sure we're doing all this. And that's the security industry today. We're spending, the next thing you know, you've got vendors, you've got consultants, you've got frameworks, you've got compliance, you've got thousands of people doing stuff. And a lot of them need very, very specialized skills to handle all these tools. But no one's taking a step back and going, well, why don't we just fix the assembly line there so we don't have a thousand incidents a day? Uh, and if you look at the skills gap, um, I saw a slide by ISC squared, 
all these skills that are highly in demand are these reactive parking lot roles. No one is going and actually just simply fixing the issues that are causing all the security work in the first place, or very, very few. And yeah, no, no one's really looking for those people. The, there's a lot of people in security that are looking for work. And I find it's, it's typically the more holistic critical thinkers, the ones that would address the root causes. They're the ones really struggling to find work. So you, you, you see the need and you see the people. Do you have an answer to bridge that gap? I mean, I think I see the needs, I see the people. I'm not sure how to answer that. I find what we do, what we call security today is, is in very large parts um, what we call SecOps. And it's responding to incidents. It's all that detect and respond. It's, it's pen testers to find the vulnerabilities that have made into production. Uh, it's SOC analysts. Um, if we fix the fundamental issues, you know, most of these breaches are because you didn't know you, you know, you didn't have, uh, you didn't know about the existence of the system. Uh, so you didn't patch it. So therefore it got compromised. And that, that's what you know, most of the big breaches are, are ultimately caused from, or they were misconfigured. If you just had solid patching processes and solid asset management and solid architectural standards, and you applied them well, um, you would fix most of these issues. And a lot of people say, oh, yes, we do that. We write a policy. Writing a policy and giving it to an IT organization that has no security mindset at all just doesn't work. You have to get in there and fix it. And that, that's when I get a lot of pushback from security people. Well, that's not our job. Like, but we, we shouldn't have to do that extra effort. But it's, it's, it's X amount of effort that's going to save you 100x amounts of effort downstream. So just do it anyway. Uh, and I say a lot of security people have this reluctance to just engage. And, you know, sometimes you've got to carry the donkey. Um, Where do you think that budgets could be cut and, and used in a better area? Most socks are, are huge money pits. Uh, you know, when, you, when you see uh, socks where they process you know, 50 million plus events per day, per day, it's like, well, you clearly could be cleaning things up further upstream. Um, just the, the way we structure things, the way things are very thinly siloed. Uh, yeah, I think security operations is, I mean, you need all these things. You need, you need tooling and you need that, that capability, but you probably only need about one-tenth of what we're allocating to it today if you fix the fundamentals. Um, I was looking at uh, a gardener and they were saying about the average security spending per user, something like $1,200 per year. We spend like one three hundredth of that because we're going after the fundamental issues so we don't have the problems anymore. So we don't need a SOC with 15 analysts, which is what one of our peer universities is doing. We have one analyst who has a quote SOC on the desk, which is two monitors, and he does a bunch of other stuff in half his time as well. So, Just talking of silos earlier, often legacy IT systems you know, are, are blamed for the lack of security. What is, what's your approach to the legacy system excuse? So it's, it's the same as, as everything else. If you have an issue, get to the root cause of that issue. So you have, if it's, you know, a system, quite often you'll have a vulnerability or you have an incident or you have a, a red team that, that flags something. It's like, oh, this system is missing a patch. It's vulnerable. And people will go and, okay, we'll, we'll install that patch now. But why wasn't the patch there in the first place? Is there an issue with your tooling? Is there an issue with your process? Is there an issue with your policy? Why did you get bad tooling? Is there an issue with your, uh, your proof of concept criteria? Find the real root cause to, the, to things. And if, it, if you get to legacy systems, it's no different. Why do you have a legacy system? 
Well, because you had a system that was built. Well, why is the legacy system a problem? Because you had a system that was built without taking into consideration maintenance windows, the ability to patch, uh, poor security architecture, that kind of thing. And everyone complains, complains, and complains that they can't do anything about it because it's no longer a supported product. But no one actually sets in place the build process, the architectural standards, and all those things. And what happens is that they complain about the system for five, six, seven, eight years because it's unpatchable. And then it finally gets replaced by a new system and it's just as unpatchable because you never created the process five years earlier that would have been followed while they built it that would have made it patchable for you. So create the process. Even if you can't fix it now, create the process. It's, I put everything on the timeline. I'm not gonna worry about fighting, uh, firefighting, anything except for the most critical things. And instead I'm going to fix the pipeline. I'm gonna fix what comes out of there. And over time, and in the case of legacy systems, that may be 10 years, but over time, everything that comes out will be clean and maintainable and it will slowly displace everything that's in the environment. And next thing you know, with minimal effort, because you didn't have to go and fix the entire environment, you just fixed, you just made sure what was coming, the new stuff that was coming in was in good shape. And over time, that just replaced all the bad stuff you had, and you had to do no effort for that. You've pointed out in the past that there's a, there's a skills gap in leadership in InfoSec. What's missing exactly? Well, yeah, I don't, again, I don't, this, constant talk of the skills gap, the number of bodies, I, I just don't see it. I think we're probably quite oversaturated as it is, uh, especially in the areas where they're looking because it's all those reactive roles. What we're Even not leadership. Yeah, what we're not seeing is, is good leadership. We've got, yeah. we've got techies that kind of perpetuate this. We've got a bunch of people managing the parking lot is, is what we've got. And, and that unfortunately is also what organizations are looking for. It's what HR you know, departments and, and CIOs, it's what they've been led to believe a CISO is. So that's the job description in most places. It's slowly changing, but that, I think that's the real, the real issue because I have, you know, I have no issue influencing people. I have no issue building teams. Uh, I'm able to retain talent at well below, we're talking like 40% below market rate and they're highly motivated, super eager. We get loads done. I mean, we get loads done from a strategic standpoint because we're driving change that in a year or two we'll have, we'll, we'll deliver 10 times the change that what we could do now with 50 people. Uh, so you have to look at everything over a long timeline. But yeah, just, it's just that, that leadership is missing. The, the looking at things holistically, the engaging the business, the, the really caring about people and the business and enabling them and not taking anything away from them. Um, that, that kind of altruism I think is, is missing. Is that the root cause of why CISOs tend to stay in a role for about 18 months? Or is there something else? I think, um, I, I think it's, it's related because it's the way we're doing it now, that, that reactive security model is, there's a few things. It's extremely stressful because the workload is tremendous because you, you're never addressing the root causes. So you're just completely flooded with issues and alerts and problems all the time. They also really seem to struggle with, you hear a lot about like board communication. How can you talk to the board and which metrics to use? I'm like, I don't use any metrics. You know, you just cup of coffee. I notice you like cars, chit chat this. Listen, I really need to set up a recorder meeting. Can we have 20 minutes every two months? Cause I need to brief you on this. And, and, and there's no, there's nothing. Every time I do a talk, I just pick someone from the audience and ask them, you know, for a cup of coffee. And everyone always says yes. There's Why no don't you use metrics? Because 
at least in, from a security standpoint, you could twist them any way you want. And you see this in vendor pitches. They're always, you know, every single solution handles 98% of problems, uh, according to some, some <laughs> figures. But you can twist them to be anything. And it's like, oh, we've got 100%, but 100% of what? Do, do you, are you even aware if that's everything? Um, and it's, you know, our maturity number. It's, it's completely irrelevant. Um, I, and, and people also say like the board doesn't understand risk, which I find hilarious because I suspect they understand risk far better uh, than a lot of security people. And if you ask most security people, what's, what's like the top 10 in your enterprise risk register? Uh, this is something um, I'm stealing from, from Dutch Schwartz. Most of them can't tell you what it is. And I, I use a similar thing for years. Like most heads of InfoSec and CISOs, they'll have been there for a year or two and they can't name what finance application they use. Like, well, you've not taken any kind of interest in the business. Um, How do you get around the metrics question then? Build the relationship. Build the relationship. Build a personal relationship. When you ask your friends how, how they thought the movie was, you know, you, you listen to them and you just trust it. You, you don't ask them for a pie chart. <laughs> you just, just build the relationship. Let them see as someone, if, if you engage the business on all levels and you help everywhere you can. So I lecture for free. I do guest lecturing. I set up courses that we resell. The university makes money off of it. I'm in all kinds of organizations. I, I do, uh, you know, I help students uh, shadow to get experience. I try to participate in like every security project, whether it's uh, EU Cyber Foundry or the Cyber Resilience Center, everywhere I go. And I, I go, every time there's an academic or a researcher, I go to them, I help them, I try to sort out their problems. I become their point of contact for a million things. And people are like, oh my God, but you're taking on all this extra work. I'm taking on this extra work, but it builds the relationships. And you know, your, your CEO, your CFO, your CEO, they start hearing about these things from five different directions. So it just, by the time you walk in the room for the first time, they already know who you are. They know you're solid. They know you care and they will listen to you. You won't spend all this time struggling and trying to justify. If you establish that relationship with this person refuses to spend a dime when it's not necessary and goes out of their way to help absolutely everyone, why wouldn't I believe what he's saying? If he thinks this is necessary, then this is probably necessary. And that, that's my approach to it. And it's just because I see most CISOs spend, I mean, I'm not kidding, some of them spend half their time just compiling metrics. If I spend all my time doing the absolute best job I can, instead of half of it spent calculating how well I'm doing, I'm gonna do a better job overall. But doesn't that take a certain amount of courage? Because if from the top they're saying, we need metrics or you lose your job. I don't really see that, to be honest. I, I, maybe it's a states thing, because in the states they, uh, they, they calculate their bonuses on the numbers. So that, then I could see it happen. I don't get a bonus, so I don't really care about the numbers. But no, I, I like to tell them, I mean, I, I, why metrics? Because I, I find people, people think that you cannot explain technology to executives, and it's just not true. We, we do silly things like, yeah, this, this thing that collects logs and correlates them so we can, you know, can correlate things together. We call that a security incident and event management system. Why, why do we do that? What if I want to do something with that data? Oh, that's, that's not a seam now. That's a sword. That, that's orchestration. Why are we doing this? Just speak plain English and they'll understand it. And if I, if I tell them, look, this is how things are normally done and this is what we're doing. I don't even have to explain the impact or the risk. Their eyes open up like, oh yeah, we really shouldn't be doing that. So if they actually understand what's going on, then they're actually emotionally and psychologically far more involved 
and they actually do some of the thinking. I leave most of the risk calculations, you know, the business financial impact, I leave that entirely up to them. They enjoy doing it. They're probably better placed than me to do it. And it involves them both mentally and, and emotionally in, in the process. So it's, it's very different, but I find it works really, really well. CISOs, security professionals, they are often stressed. There's a lot of stress in the industry. There's a lot of burnout. And even more so now during a, a, a global crisis such yep. as COVID-19, what's your advice to security professionals and how they can switch off? It is, it is stressful. Now, I don't know about switching off. Uh, I am kind of always on, but I, I try to not get... Um, I'm always working, but I try not to get stressed about it. And I think the way we're doing security now, that reactive approach and that, that frustration where we're banging our heads against the wall because we can't do change, it's, it's really, I, put, I did a post this morning on LinkedIn, it's, it's really soul crushing. I mean, it's, there's no reward in it. You're just fixing stuff all the time and it's overwhelming because you can't address the root causes. So just changing that approach already makes a really, really big difference. Now, the thing with that approach is that you're not going to fix anything today. You have to kind of envision where you're going to, where you want to be in three years, five years, depending on the organization, how long that's going to take. And the thing is, you know your destination, but you don't know the path to it. And that's when I, when I get, oh, I can't do this because we don't have the tooling, or I can't do this because I've got political resistance, or I can't do that because there's a limitation in the org chart and how things report into each other. I see that as my challenge. That when I, it's not a no and I get frustrated, it's a, okay, here's the block. I have to go through or around this. It's, it's indicating the path to me. And I actually get excited when I come into this. Like, okay, I know what my next challenge is. Now I'm going to go up against this. And it may take three months or six months to do that, but that's okay because I'm on a five-year plan. And once I unblock this, I'm going to be one-fifth of the way closer to that final resort. So six months makes perfect sense in terms of, of time investments. So I, I try to think more strategically and long-term. Uh, that way I don't get frustrated about everything that's immediately in front of my face. Anything you do from day to day? Um, How are you doing it in, during um, the pandemic? You know, you, your workload must be um, treble the amount. Yeah, it's, it's difficult to do strategic, some of the strategic stuff now. Well, it's, it's, it's funny because it's, it's pushed some things to the breaking point, which has kind of accelerated what we wanted to do. Uh, other things are more challenging because we're all remote. We don't necessarily have the capabilities to, to handle that. Um, so yeah, the, the workload is a bit high. Uh, we, um, we try to keep in good spirits. I this week uh, instilled a, a policy within my team that we will communicate exclusively in uh, office space means. So that's keeping morale quite high. <laughs> the, the relationship with, uh, with your boss is, is so crucial, but the same thing with your own people, with your team. I'm, I'm happy to have uh, built the team and uh, we're, we're just mates really and we're just on the, on teams all day together uh, and it's you know one line's a serious question the next line's a joke um, just keep it positive don't, yeah. don't drive yourself crazy and you, you have to accept you can't fix everything now you, you just have to accept that okay well stay safe stay well thank you so much Greg it's been inspiring and illuminating and thank you for your time thank you very much Anna it's been a pleasure Thanks to Greg. I hope you enjoyed the interview. If you found it useful, then please do share this interview as well as comment on, rate and review our podcast. We appreciate all your support. We'll be back next week for more Cyber Conversations. Join us then.